Well, you could have been one of those asymptomatic assholes who's just going around infecting other people and gets off scot-free. That's actually what I'm hoping for, of Ugh. course. Yes, well, that's that's the dream, isn't it? This podcast features explicit language and spoilers. Hello out there and welcome to Better Late Than Never, a movie podcast where I invite a friend to watch a blockbuster cult favorite or otherwise culturally significant film that they've never seen before. After we watch that movie, my guest will decide if it was better late that they've been missing out by not having seen the film, or never. The movie just didn't live up to the hype for them. My name is Dave, and I'm your host. This week, I am joined by returning guest Will over the magic of the internet across a coronavirus-ridden apocalypse, and we are going to be watching a movie that neither of us has ever seen before, and that movie is The Apartment from 1960 hey will how's shit shit is it's shit i mean we're all doing the same thing right it's like the days are running into one another uh nobody can leave the house every time we do we feel like we're going out into some apocalyptic wasteland everyone's wearing masks i mean not to date this recording or anything but i don't think anything's changed in the past month and a half or will change anytime soon so i think we're pretty safe there yeah I mean, honestly, when people ask me what I got up to over the weekend, I'm like, I went to the grocery store. It's a fucking it's a adventure, whole thing, right? Yeah, it's a whole thing. And there's some real adventure there, too. There's some danger. People get within six feet of you. And you're like, hey, that's four and a half feet at best, buddy. And then if somebody coughs, forget about it. I mean, you get to carry that excitement with you for the rest of the weekend. Like, do I have it? <laughs> yeah, I know. Well, anyway, so, yeah, that's... Uh... That's uh, going to date us in terms of what point in time we're making this podcast, but who cares? It is uh, it is what it is. But you know what? Things are about to get a whole lot better because we're going to talk about and then watch and then talk about again The Apartment. The Apartment. Yeah. So this was uh, your suggestion. So uh, what are you thinking with this movie? Yeah. And well, have you seen this film? I have not. I've heard a little bit about it, and I think I have a vague sense of it, but um, that's about it. Awesome. I think I'm the same, and we can get into what we both think and how that is the same or possibly different. I mean, I think one of the challenges in you know doing this podcast, and I've done a bunch of episodes with you now, is that you know, being such a film geek for most of my life, there aren't that many kind of touchstone movies that got past me. 
Um, oh, we well, already... look at you. I'm not. No, I'm obviously I'm not bragging. I had a misspent youth, and I was you know renting movies from the video store and watching them at home while other people were out getting laid. But it it is you know uh, you know when I thought of the apartment and actually it came up in a different podcast I was listening to. Um, uh, Neil Brennan's podcast, which I enjoy on a weekly basis, um, and, and it's you. his favorite movie of all time. And he was he was talking about it as a perfect movie. And then it was one of those where I realized, you know, I've never seen that. And I'll let you know, kind of my my prior uh, assumptions going into it, or kind of what I've gleaned from the cultural ether or whatever. Uh, you mentioned it came out in 1960, which was a little earlier than I was going to guess. I thought it was maybe mid-60s. Um, I believe that it stars Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine, and I believe it was directed by William Wilder. I believe it's one of kind of a string of movies that had, um, you know, a similar cast um, that was directed by Wilder or one of his contemporaries. Um, you know, movies like Some Like It Hot, which is, of course, mm. known by most as, as, you know, one of the classic comedies. Um, there's a movie that I've seen and the title of it keeps escaping me, um, but it has a similar cast, I believe, Jack Lemmon and Shirley MacLaine. And Shirley MacLaine plays a prostitute of some kind. And I keep thinking of the title, What's Up, Tiger Lily? It's not that because that's a Woody Allen film. Um, and it's also not What's New Pussycat, which is a, a song. Um, but uh, it, it a might be terrible, terrible song. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> I guess I, I can't really separate it from the uh, salt and pepper diner bit for, by John Mulaney. That's exactly the uh, bit that's in my head when I think of it. Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> which is a brilliant bit, by the way. And we don't have to go down I. Yeah, uh, one of the best of kissing of all time, probably. Uh, probably, and we don't have to go down a rabbit hole of kissing John Mulaney's ass because I mean he gets enough of that. But um, yeah, that's a brilliant bit. Um, but I don't remember the name of that film, but I believe that's also a William Wilder film. Um, I believe that there were a string of them, uh, and the apartment I think is kind of one of the more culturally heralded or critically heralded um, of sort of that uh, that run of films. Um, in my mind, it takes place, you know, mostly in, I think another movie sort of merged within my, in my brain is Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which I oh. believe came out around the same time and had a Liz Taylor and Richard Burton and they yeah. were all in an apartment getting drunk and arguing about things. And it Do was kind of Do you know anything like, else about that movie? I've seen it. Um, I saw oh. it, you know, years and years ago, but, uh, yeah. Were you, did you have something good to say about that one? Oh no! I was just—I was wondering if you thought the apartment was going to be like very much similar to that. You know, something in my brain it is, and that's the part that I could be completely off base. But um, I'm thinking that it takes place mostly in an apartment. That it could maybe that be would a stage make sense. play, um, right? Based on the name and based on the reality that we're all living these days. I believe that it's a comedy, but I believe that it's a comedy that has some kind of deep pathos to it. Um, some, you know, real human drama, some underlying um, stuff. Uh, I think that it's probably, you know, very well written, uh, very good dialogue, was probably nominated for best screenplay. And I mean, with the with the two leads or who I believe the two leads to be, um, you can't really go wrong. 
And I believe it's William Wilder. I could be wrong there as well. Um, but of course, he uh, has an amazing track record uh, also. And, um, you, you know, generally... William Wilder? Yeah. Is that is that his name? Billy Wilder? Doesn't he go... Isn't he Billy Wilder? I was trying to give him the... <laughs> the royal uh the, oh, the... just 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 treat him with the respect he deserves kind of thing i guess so yeah well, you know everyone says jimmy stewart but then when you see the poster it's james stewart and you're like right the hell calls him james stewart that type of thing yeah yeah okay i don't know <laughs> just, that's, just that's my <laughs> no yeah i don't know it's like like so, well, i don't know Allen. we're not on a first name basis uh, who knows <laughs> uh yeah anyway that's that's pretty much uh, all my prior uh conceptions of the movie i mean that that is very comprehensive i have to say um i i'm not even sure if i'm gonna be able to think of follow-up questions but um for myself so my original preconceptions were very very similar and in fact um because i was really busy this week i haven't even done really any background research on this film yet um so uh, none of my preconceptions have been broken yet so this really is i'm still in my kind of newborn babe blind phase here what i will say though is that i was pretty sure that i was conflating this film with another one and i had thought that i was getting it mixed up with the seven year itch because all right so Mm. I was like, I'm, I, I'm almost certain Jack Lemmon's in this movie, so we must be right about that. And then I was like, I know that there is an, a, a famous actress in this too. And I'm like, it's not the seven-year itch, but is Marilyn Monroe in this movie too? And, but what I'm now thinking is, because you mentioned it a minute ago, maybe I'm mixing this movie up with some like it hot. Because isn't Marilyn I Monroe think- in that Marilyn Monroe is in Some Like It Hot, and I think that's exactly what you're doing, if I'm correct. Yeah, because what I was thinking was, okay, so I was like, my original thought was that this is a movie that all you know also has Marilyn Monroe, and it's with Jack Lemmon, and I was like, what I think it is is like there's some kind, it's some kind of romantic farce with some cross dressing involved, and I'm like, oh, now I'm thinking maybe that's Some Like It Hot, which I haven't seen. But maybe that's the plot of Some Like It Hot with the cross-dressing and Marilyn Monroe. I guess we'll find out. But what I also think about this movie is that um, there is some kind of like business plot, like a, a climbing the corporate ladder hmm. story, maybe. Like, like you know, like like that play, uh, How to Succeed in Business Without Really Trying, kind of story going on. Right. Like I do think it's a comedy. I think this is a light-hearted film. But um, there's there's some sort of like uh, and, you know, it's called the apartment. So you would think that it was mostly like domestically based. But yeah, my my impression is somehow that there's still some kind of like business side plot going on here. I guess we'll see. I also think that besides the two leads that we've mentioned. So you must be right that it's Shirley MacLaine, not Marilyn Monroe, because I must have been confused. But I think there's another actor. I was like, it's Jack Lemon and maybe another guy. Although maybe that's some like it hot too. Is that the movie that has the other guy? 
Yes, yeah, Some Like It Hot, I believe, is Tony Curtis, uh, along with Jack Lemmon and Marilyn Monroe. And, oh, damn. Um, okay. Well, and I was... not, to, not to spoil your, your preconceptions, but that movie does revolve around uh, cross-dressing. The two gentlemen cross-dressed to get on a cruise or something like that um, and end up bunking with Marilyn Monroe. And hilarious. Well, that was all turned around. Okay. Um, I'm sticking by my business plot, though. The climbing the corporate ladder hijinks. I'm 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 sticking by it, and I don't know why that would be the plot in a movie called The Apartment, but I'm I'm gonna. That was my initial preconception, and it's on record now. So I'm just gonna I'm gonna live or die by it. It's I'm gonna die on that hill. Well, um, we all gotta pay rent, so I mean, yeah. if you live in an apartment, you gotta do something in the business world. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, I've also heard that this movie is like just generally speaking, extremely well thought of. So I have also not seen it, but its reputation precedes it. So, you know, I keep hearing a lot about it being great. And, you know, the since Jack Lemmon, I think, is in it, I think that guy is a phenomenal actor. So I have high expectations on that. Did he even maybe win an Oscar in this movie? Question mark. I haven't researched it yet, possible. so I don't know. It's yeah. quite possible we did. Let's talk about Jack Lemon for a second, because I feel awesome. like our generation knows Jack Lemon maybe from Glengarry Glen Ross, of course, which he's fantastic in. But I think more so we probably think of him as, you know, grumpy old men, him and Mathau, because we weren't alive when they were doing their best work. So we think of them as, you know, their old guy roles and like the grumpy old men movies and when they did the sequel to Odd Couple and stuff like that. Um, and then sadly, also probably from the Kevin Spacey impression that he did on every talk show and Oscar ceremony for throughout the entire 90s. I mean, shit, I'm not even sure people of our generation, generally speaking, know much about Jack Lemmon unless they're film nerds. Yeah, And if well, they're film nerds, well. it would mainly be probably Glengarry Glenn Ross, right? I would think so, yeah. Although, I don't know, I definitely saw Grumpy Old Men in the same era that I saw like Wayne's World and Mrs. Doubtfire and... Angels he, of the Outfield. I think, all right, so other than the acting being really great, and I think maybe Jack Lemmon wins an Oscar for this movie, which I guess we'll find out once I actually uh, look into it a little bit more. I think that's all I've got for this because, you know, it's an older film, so it's a little bit more of a black hole than some of the others that we've done. Right. So I don't think there's anything else that I have as a prediction for this. I do have a kind of hope, which is that, um, you know, uh, it's come up time and again when we've kind of reached into the past for movies that um, it's a little too slow for our modern sensibilities. So mm -hmm. I'm hoping that because we, at least I think this will be kind of a more lighthearted comedic film those tend to be a little snappier and a little faster paced that this will hold up on that end and not um you know not feel slow yeah and i think that we'll see i mean i know that billy wilder was famous for um kind of doing you know fast paced you know very witty comedies of course you know comedy is the genre that i think ages uh the most or is the most yeah. sort of reliant on um on a on a shared culture to kind of get the joke and you see that even if you watch him a comedy that was hilarious even 20 years ago let alone whatever 50 years ago now um or 60 years ago right if this is 60 damn God. um 
<laughs> right? I know. Um, but uh, so that'll be interesting to see. Um, I Billy Wilder was definitely, I think, a precursor to Woody Allen as far as you know, writing and directing uh, very sort of uh, witty and intelligent comedies with witty dialogue. Um, Billy Wilder, I don't think, made himself the star of any of his movies. He had real actors. Um, but it's, you know, in the same way as, well, I don't know, it's I, I, it's been a while since I've revisited any of the Woody Allen stuff, I think, for obvious cultural reasons. Mm. Um, but I, I do have a hope that it's going to be uh, in comparison to some of those movies. And and I don't know. I mean, comedies from that era, I've definitely liked the Billy Wilder stuff I've seen. I mean, even something like um, Preston Sturges, who his movies are definitely dated, but I think they're still, you know, very funny and hold up in a lot of ways. So I guess we'll just have to kind of see. Yeah. And we will see indeed. So I think we're ready to watch this movie, unless you've got anything else you want to get down on uh, on record before before we go. No, I don't think I have anything more. I'm excited to see it and see what we think. Yeah, I'm excited to see this too. I'm always kind of interested when... um. You know, uh, a guest for the pod has something in mind that they want to do that I hadn't thought of. And especially this one, you know, like when I mentioned, I told my dad I'd be watching this one and he got very like, you know, excited and interested. He's like, oh, the apartment. That was, that was great. You know, Jack Lemmon. (laughs) So I'd already, I already, I already do. Is your dad Walter Matthau? Because my dad is Walter Matthau. I was saving it for part two, (laughs) but my real name is Walter Matthau the fourth. <laughs> wow, I did not know that. Yes, I have several older brothers. We're all named Walter Matthau. Um, <laughs> but, uh, all right. Well, um, before we go for our watch, I just want to throw out that if you'd like to contact this podcast, you can do that by emailing us at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at betterlate underscore pod. And with that, let's watch this bad boy. Nice. All right. We'll catch you on the flip side. This is the part where we're watching the movie. And now it's done. And we're back. We're back. We've both now seen the film The Apartment, not together as has been tradition, but in our own homes, on our own time somewhat. Yeah, well, we do we do it how we got to do it nowadays. But um, so I wanted to ask, you said that you listened to another podcast where somebody said that this is his favorite film. Uh, he called it a perfect film, not which is different from a favorite film. Okay. I'll go a little bit into the context of that, if you want, if that helps. Sure. So I I listened to um, a podcast called How Neil Feel. It's by Neil Brennan, um, who is a comedian who, if folks don't know, um, has a special on Netflix called Three Mics, uh, which is terrific. Um, He is also... Dave Chappelle's Millhouse? Correct, yes. The um, longtime collaborator with Dave Chappelle... um, He's basically to the Chappelle Show what um, uh, what Larry David was to Seinfeld, um, and has kind of collaborated with Chappelle and others all along the way. So a guy who's very well yep. known, sort of behind the scenes in the comedy world, um, as well. My as... comment was too cruel. I, I'm 
I understand. <laughs> no, uh, I think he would not disagree with that. Um, so he brought this up in the context of calling it a perfect film and also in the context of kind of talking about how he had tried to make a remake of it, uh, starring, um, he said, one of his black friends, which means either Rock or Chappelle and kind of doing an updated version of it. And that's actually been um, stuck in my head quite a bit since actually watching the movie. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, kind of how he brought it up and reminded me that it's a movie I hadn't seen. Well, it would certainly be interesting to see this film reimagined for the Me Too era. Well, that's for sure, yes. I mean, that's... Which I guess we'll get into yeah. once we get into the plot but um as i mentioned before uh, i haven't had the ability to do quite the same amount of like you know looking into it that i normally do i got a couple of things uh the most interesting thing i found was just a little uh basically piece of trivia about the art direction in the film mm -hmm. which was um so there's that really cool shot pretty early in the film although i think it recurs where jack lemon is working in his he works as an insurance guy in this giant corporate building and there's a shot of him at his desk and it just like it's like the mines of moria it just keeps going yeah. behind him on and on and on of all these desks and people at them typing away just like off endlessly into the into the horizon basically and I guess the way they accomplished that, uh, the art director was named Alexandra Traun Troner or Tronay. The name looks French, so I'm sorry if I butchered it. But um, he created the shot using forced perspective. And um, so even though it looks like it's a really long room, he's accomplishing it partially by having increasingly smaller desks occupied by increasingly smaller people until the ones at the back are tiny little desks with children sitting at them. And I thought that was pretty cool. So the people in the background, the background extras were actually uh, children wearing like adult suits. Yeah, or, or, I guess I mean, so. They were fitted for children, but like to look like adults. Yeah. Interesting. Pretty kind of neat. It's a pretty neat. Yeah. yeah, that's a pretty neat trick. Yeah. Who needs CGI? It wasn't available back then, and I agree. Anytime, actually, that's that's a tangent, but anytime you can do an effect practically, I'll always take that over CGI 99% of the time. I guess, uh, so let's start talking about the director, uh, which in this case is Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder. William Wilder, yes. You know what? I was referring to him as William Wilder when we were, um, when we were speaking the first time because I kind of wanted to give him uh, that reverence. But yep. um, the funny thing is, his name isn't William. His name nope. is... Uh, <laughs> you, okay, do you have it in front of you? Because I forget what it is. Um, but basically... Hey, it's he immigrated... Samuel Wilder. Is it Samuel? Yeah. Um, but Billy yeah. was just a nickname. But uh, I was in no way doing him a proper service by calling him William. Well, I actually... To be fair, in part one, I didn't know that either. Uh, I only learned that when I popped onto his Wikipedia page in between parts. So I, I just learned that too. Yeah. Uh, you know, okay. Living um, Yeah. Uh, well, what I did learn while living is that um, he is an Austrian-born person mm -hmm. who then moved to Berlin and was hanging out doing stuff there when it became time to flee the Nazis. So he did that. 
and he eventually wound up in America, which is when he started directing basically like half of the products of the like golden age of Hollywood cinema from his filmography. Just a few of the ones that popped up while skimming his filmography. Double Indemnity, mm-hmm. which I like just saw a few nights ago because it was on Turner. Uh, Sunset Boulevard, yep. Stalag 17, Sabrina, mm-hmm. which I think is is either the first or one of the first films with Audrey Hepburn, Witness for the Prosecution, The Seven Year Itch, Some Like It Hot, and of course this film, The Apartment, which and there's there's more too, but like there's that was just literally dozens more. Yeah, I know you cherry picked the biggest names, um, but there are literally dozens more. I mean, this guy's output was absolutely incredible, spanning from the early 30s into the 80s. Uh, yeah, and, God and damn. Most years he did more than one. It looks like so it's it's absolutely incredible the output this guy had. And not only that, too, but spanning such interesting and varied genres. Like, you've got Double Indemnity, which is, like, such a great noir-y film. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Sunset Boulevard. Then you've got, like, a war, you know, the the war the war film, basically. It's Prisoners, but it's a war film with Stalag 17. And, you know, you've got, like, kind of a fun romantic romp with this and Some Like It Hot and The Seven-Year Itch. Witness for the Prosecution's a fucking court movie. Like, it's just all over the place, and all of them are great. They are all great. Not only are they all great, but they all managed to, you, you uh, mentioned that it was sort of in the golden age of cinema when there are, were real restrictions on what you could do uh, within yes. the studio system. And he managed to do a lot of things, even dating back. I mean, we'll get into uh, this movie and maybe some of the others, like Some Like It Hot and Irma LaDouche and stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, even earlier stuff like Double Indemnity and Sunset Boulevard had really kind of subversive things that he was able to get through there uh, during that era. Yeah, you weren't really supposed to have such morally gray uh, characters and morals like what you get in something like Double Indemnity. Right. But he got away with it. So, yeah, I mean, the the ones from that list that I have seen, I all think are fantastic. And also, thank you for uh, teaching me how to pronounce Irma LaDouche because I saw that. And I was like, I've seen this written, but I'm not going to say it on the pod because I don't know how. You know, I don't know how either. Um, so Uh-oh. I figured I'd take the bullet. I'm almost certain I got it wrong. I did see that movie and I referred to it in the uh, in the part one. And I think I thought it was called something like What's Up, Tiger Lily, which I could not have been more off base by. <laughs> okay, well, now it's out there and we're both we'll, we'll both take take the bullets equally, I guess. Fair enough. On that. But yeah, Um. So, and, you know, I guess we'll talk about the directing a little bit for this film in particular. I thought it was one thing that I really, really focused on in this is that, and I don't know if this is really a coherent, you know, well thought out professional reviewer way of putting it, but it was very like clean and crisp, the directing and the editing, Mm -hmm. like, you know, all like all the shots were just like really well composed. The editing was always like really sharp and just there was, it wasn't very fancy, but it was always very, I don't know something about about it. It felt like clear as a still lake throughout the entire thing. 
I th- and I don't know. I, I kind of feel dumb the way I'm putting it, but just that w- that's what I kept thinking while I was watching it. I think that's actually right on. Um, and it's not showy. The direction is not showy. Um, and it's not uh, necessarily a showcase for the directing. The directing is kind of facilitating the writing and the acting to a certain extent, but it's definitely mm. doing a more than competent job at, at you know, allowing those things to exist. Um, and, you know, the framing is, you know, it... it it, it kind of all takes on sort of this uh, kind of, I don't want to say melodrama, but maybe that's indeed the right word of the era where everything kind of lives in sort of this medium wide shot um, with, you know, that score that's uh, so indicative of the era. Um, and even though it's actually, you know, uh, as far as the story and what happens in it and the themes that it touches upon, both, you know, more uh, darker and uh, more funny and um, sort of more uh, provocative than those movies really tended to go. But it was still sort of uh, it housed itself in the trappings of the, that kind of 1950s melodrama. Yeah. And while I, I agree about the content, I don't want to totally sell the visual short because, you know, there were some pretty uh, cool shots like uh, the one we talked about a minute ago where you've got all the desks going back forever. And um, I think there's another shot, too, that I'll, I'll mention when we get to it in the plot that I liked a lot. Actually, two that I liked a lot. Um, but also I thought, um, especially given the nature of this being in black and white, he did some pretty good work with light in this movie. Sure. Like just just the way the the insurance building and every time he was at work, it was always just so like not just brightly lit, but the light was always just so very like even and corporate. But once you start getting into, you know, his dingy apartment and these dingy bars like, you know, the it's it's dark and shadowy, but kind of still looks very, um, very clear. Uh, I, I don't know. It's it's a little a little amateurish how I'm putting it, but um you know what I'm saying? No, I know exactly what you're saying, and I agree with that. Um, and there's a marked contrast between the way that the office is lit, of course, and the, how the apartment is lit, and all that was very deliberate. So I didn't mean to kind of sell it short when I said the directing wasn't showy or that it wasn't trying to do too much. Well, it isn't showy. It was trying I, I to do exactly right. what it was trying to do, um, or it was doing exactly what it was trying to do, I should say. Which is highlight the actors. So maybe we should uh, mention them. So, hey... We were both right. Jack Lemon's in this. We were right about Lemon. Yeah, so he plays C.C. Bud Baxter. Uh, I don't think I remember him ever actually being called Bud. I remember him being called Buddy a bunch, but I think Buddy Boy. I thought that yeah. was just. I thought that was just like 1940s talk, or I guess 60 by then. But hey, Buddy Boy, how you doing there? <laughs> like, um, I was wrong though. He, he while nominated. He did not win Best Actor. Interesting. Interesting. I didn't look that up. Lemon definitely won a Best Actor somewhere along the way, I imagine. Um, yeah, I think he's won two or, or more than one. Um, but at least one, yes. Um, Shirley MacLaine as Fran Kublik. 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 Yes, interesting name. Dude. Okay. I am used to thinking of Shirley MacLaine as an old person. <laughs> she and is I'm an old used person. To think, but, but also, like, you know, her reputation for being into all kinds of new age stuff and kind of being like, a, it It sounds wrong to be like, she's kind of known for being a weirdo, but like, that's not really how I mean it. But, you know, the, the it, it, she's Shirley MacLaine. Mm-hmm. At least that was the reputation when we were growing up. But 
dude, she's fucking cute as hell in this movie. Very much so, yeah. Definitely. Damn. This, and I think she had, you know, a uh, uh, good run of these types of roles where she's very much in that sort of Audrey Hepburn, Marilyn Monroe uh, kind of uh, a witty well, ingenue. She's got the Audrey Hepburn haircut in this one. Yes, she does. Yeah, the, he's just taking a moment for lead actress objectification corner here, which is <laughs> you kinda, becoming a tradition. You have to, um, to a certain extent. So, I mean, you know, that's why they're there. And if we were, you know, if we went the other way, we'd be talking about the guy. So um, just uh, the way Well, it is. they were not as objectively good looking, frankly. Uh, no, uh, neither of the two gentlemen, uh, Lemon, who you mentioned, and uh, Fred McMurray, who I think you might have mentioned in the part one, if I'm remembering right. Did you? I don't know if I did, but I was really glad to see him because, like I said, I'd like just seen Double Indemnity. Mm-hmm. And what I really liked about him in this is that um, he, it, it was so funny to me in watching this how thin the line was between both the content and the nature of dialogue is between like hard bitten noir mm-hmm. and sleazy guy who's cheating on his wife, you know? Cause like, so the night before I was like, Hey baby, we're in this together. You and me going all the way down the rails. The two of us just hanging on. Sorry, baby. You know, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. And then like the next night he's like, listen, you know what? Why does a man run around? Well, because he's lonely at home. You know, that's why he cheats on his wife, because she doesn't understand him. See? You get that, don't you, toots? <laughs> like, and I was just like, oh, it's so close. I like, because he's such a sleaze in this, and he's great at it. He's gr- I mean, it's a terrific performance, that character, and we'll get into it step by step as we go through the plot, but an absolute monster of a human being. Unbelievable. Like, I, I, it was just like, Don Draper must have been based on this person but it was like try not to like leave a trail of slime everywhere you go you know i think that's right i mean you you brought up draper and definitely i was gonna bring that up um because this this definitely had a lot of things that reminded me of Mad Men. it was set in the exact same time in the same place um takes place in the same year in the same year season one of Mad Men, and you know that christmas party um which we'll get yeah but they have that scene in season one of Mad Men. Um, so, I mean, that's, that's certainly Mad Men had to have been influenced by this movie to a certain degree. Um, but also God, right. the idea that, you know, w- what you lo- saw in <laughs> Mad Men, maybe you thought was, or, or maybe I, you know, I certainly believed that certain aspects of it were sort of satire or, um, sort of looking back at the era in, in a way that was critical and playing it up a little bit um which i'm sure that this movie was doing as well even though it was you know a contemporary setting um but you know they didn't get it out of nowhere that's the world and the way that it was um and it's insane yeah but, but i mean also i mean insofar as i do recognize that don is not meant to be a hero and there are so many things that are wrong with him i don't think i'm far off base in saying that don is really really cool and so you cannot help but see all the things that Don does and just be like, God damn, that guy's so cool. And yet here's Fred McMurray basically playing the same character, mm-hmm. and yet he is such a piece of shit. He's an, yeah, he has no redeeming qualities. I mean, Don Draper has a lot of, well, he, they built in a lot of empathetic qualities, which I guess you have to do mm. because he's the protagonist as opposed to the antagonist. Um, but as you said, he's also very cool and 
Very hot, very attractive man. He's on Shirley MacLaine's level. Oh, man, imagine the two of them. Ugh. Ugh. Be still my hot. Right? All right. Well, so let's talk about the movie then. So it gets started in beautiful black and white, and we get some nice voiceover. New York City is a city still of just 8 million people, I want to point out. They mentioned that in the beginning. Which I was surprised. I would have thought that the population of New York had grown, if not exponentially, at least grown in the past 60 years. So it hasn't grown very much, at least not in New York City proper. I'm sure it's like metropolitan area is enormous, but um, I don't think it's that much bigger than that now. Disappointed in you, New York. Got to step your game up. Uh, But I was right. Despite being called the the apartment, this is a movie about business. It's a, absolutely a movie about business. You know, it's funny. I think like if we yes! talk about the in 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 coming to the movie, um, in our preconceived notions and our guesses about what the movie was about, I think you and I each ca- kind of ha- got like half of it right and half of it wrong. So we combined yeah. with getting kind of everything right, except for neither of us had any idea what the central premise of the film was. Clearly. <laughs> Yeah, we totally danced around the actual spine of the film. But, uh, you know, we, we, we got some of the edges. Um, I, I just want to say, too, it is about business. It's about the insurance business. Ew. Mm-hmm. And um, he works. So we mentioned the shot where we see where Jack Lemon, our protagonist, uh, Baxter, he's working. And as it turns out, it does, in fact, get worse than working in a cubicle. You could be working in, I guess what you could call this, the old school open concept office yep. style, where everyone's desk is just out in the open next to one another. And like in these incredibly dehumanizing rows and like you have to like line up for the elevator and like wait and like wait for the express. And I know it still works like that in like a lot of buildings and stuff, but just I find it so horrible it's just a giant room with with just these stark rows of desks just plain wooden chairs people are typing at typewriters uh you're not sneaking off to look at the internet for five minutes to clear your head um you know you're wearing you a suit Twitter, and tie no. all day it's it's uh, it, it is yeah nine ten hours a day of that um i mean you can a see fucking bell rings when you can go home exactly I mean, you can see why everyone was an alcoholic. Uh, he makes $94.71 a week. After taxes. Um, which, uh, according to IMDb anyway, if you translate that uh, into 2014 money anyway, is around 40000 a year. Right. Now, the thing is, he does point out that that's his take home. Which means, and I don't know what the tax rate was on that level of income. I didn't uh, do that math, um, but it Higher, seems to me probably. that that uh, that you know that 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 calling it forty grand a year is lowballing it because um, it's not taking into account the whatever thirty, forty, fifty percent that it was taken out in taxes during um, during. Yeah. I guess it was the still the Eisenhower administration then. So, I mean, I, I think that you would really have to say that that's closer to, you know, 60, 70, 80, which, which makes it seem a little bit more in line, even though still not in line once we get to, uh, once, once you tell us how much the apartment cost, if you have it in front of you. Oh my God, his rent. Mm-hmm. So Jack Lemon has an apartment 
on the Upper West Side of New York. Looking out over Central Park, yeah. In the West 60s, yeah. half a block from Central Park. I think at one point he actually says it's West 67th Street. And for this one bedroom on West 67th Street, close to Broadway, he is paying $85 a month. <laughs> which is less than what he makes in a week. Less than what he makes. So it's less than a fourth of his take home is an apartment a pretty nice apartment a small one it's a studio but you know it's not even a studio it's, it's a not one even bedroom. a studio he it's has a, one a dedicated one bedroom yeah um, and it's nice as shit come on he's got a record player he's, he's got a tv he's even got a clicker for a tv one of them newfangled clickers oh my god yeah he's kind of no, got it's it amazing made, except for the situation which we'll get into but other than that he's kind of got it made yeah now will i didn't have a lot of free time but I did have enough time to hop on apartments.com and check out <laughs> what one bedrooms are going for in the West 60s near Central Park. Oh, my God. Do you want to take a guess? Uh, okay. <sighs> Monthly rent for a one bedroom uh, half block away in the, in the upper 60s west side. Oh, my God. I... I don't want to say an outrageous number just to say it. I want to try to get as close as possible, though. Um, 3K? So there was a range, but I found that it pretty much averaged out as about three to $4,000 a month. Yeah, yeah. So you pretty much nailed it. You can, you can, you can find spots for 2500 You can do it for 2500 a month. Yeah, but um, three to four is more likely. Yeah, and just imagine all those people right now living on top of each other, spending $4,000 a month and not being able to leave. That's got to suck. I mean, wow. Yeah, but their delivery is better. <laughs> that's that's certainly true. Oh, my goodness. So, yeah, that was uh, th- those were some huge takeaways I had just from like the opening narration of this film. Yeah. And then we actually discover the premise of the film, which is that it's called The Apartment because what his his deal is that in order to get in good with the executives higher up in the company and potentially get a promotion, the way he brown noses is that he lets them use his apartment to bang broads. And it's blatant, you know, and that's where we get... Uh, into the fact that I was actually, you know, very surprised. I won't say very surprised, but but I was surprised and a little taken aback by just how blatant it was that everyone was just going up there to fuck. I mean, it's bothering the neighbors. Like, the, the neighbors are like, what the... F-? Like, you got girls coming in and out of here nonstop and playing loud music and having parties? Like, you have someone here, like, every night, sometimes twice, like... Yeah, his, his you live a crazy life, dude. His neighbors, Doctor Dreyfus and his wife Mildred, um, who are a charming and cute and and no, I didn't find it offensive, but certainly very much a Jewish uh, married couple. Um, a lot of Jews in this movie. <laughs> at least, I mean, you know, it's the Upper West Side. What do you expect? You know, you don't, of course, you don't have to be inaccurate. No, no. His landlady's Jewish too, his, if I remember. Or who's the one who was like all the Michigas? Like, by the way, these guys, these executives, who basically they're using his place 
they're all married. So they're using this as a crash pad to bring floozies back to have trysts with. And again, as we mentioned earlier, this is not a Me Too friendly film. Um, they, um, they, they aren't even really treating him very well. They're not treating him with any respect. They're like keeping him out of his own place late, sometimes kicking him out of his own place overnight. Yeah. Such, such that he, he's in bed at like 11 and a guy comes by and he's like, Hey man, got to use your apartment. Go walk around all night and like spend the night sitting on a bench in Central Park when it's raining. Terrible, right? Terrible. God damn. I mean, I'm like what? It it definitely makes you Well, I I guess I'll ask the question. Did you empathize with Baxter um or because I mean, he did this to himself in large way, but he kind of was just trying to be nice and didn't know what he was getting into? Um, as well, but it just kind of, uh, I, I mean, I did feel very badly for him, even though it was somewhat his own fault. So I, you know, I understand wanting to get along at work and wanting to get in good with your superiors. And I am totally a pushover at work. Yeah, as but, am I, as am I. But no job is worth this. Right. And I, I found as the movie went on, I did kind of start to lose my empathy for him because the lengths he goes to, the unappreciated lengths for in a lot of ways. I mean, he does get promotions, but like to a certain extent, he, he just like keeps doing these things where I'm just like, no, like I can't empathize with your character because... I, I don't see how any reasonable human being would put up with this, even for the, you know, the projected payoff. Right, right. Which, I mean, I understand, like, it's, uh, you know, movies kind of have to stick to their premise. And the uh, uh, Shirley MacLaine character, Fran, um, also, you know, at certain points, I thought it stretched uh, credulity that that she would continue kind of on on her arc for as long as she did as well. Uh, with the uh, McMurray character Sheldrake, um, but you know, at, at a certain point, it's like you you, you have to, I think, in some ways, give movies uh, the sure. the permission to to take their premises where they need to go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, but you know, they're also they're they're drinking all his booze, they're eating all his shit, they're you know, and they're being like, hey, by the time I come around next time, make sure you got more of those cheesy crackers, <laughs> right? huh? God damn. All right. Well, so anyway, uh, the plot goes on. He finally gets home. He manages to watch some TV and we got some cool like this is the 60s stuff going on because, yep. OK, number one, he is not recycling any of those empty bottles. And there's a lot of empty bottles. Oh, my. Yes. Uh, it reminded me of um, I house sat for my uncle once and it just so happened that oh, that house sitting experience went over my birthday when I was in my 20s uh-huh. and so people you know, I didn't like throw a rager or anything but like I had some people came over and we drank a fair amount of alcohol and that alcohol wound up in the recycle bin and every time after that when I house sat because I did a good job I cleaned the place up yeah. you know whatever he always like left me a lot of liquor <laughs> And I was like, you, I, I think I gave you a very wrong impression of me. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, 
uh, don't go ahead. Anyway, you know? right. yeah. <laughs> Who are um, you to complain? But, yeah. No, but, sure. It's great. Except I, I don't actually drink that much. But, well, it would be difficult yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. I'll take it for free. Um, there's a cigarette commercial on TV. Yeah. So I'll take that just that TV scene. I'll just take a brief moment to say that that was one thing I sort of appreciated about the movie, or I won't say sort of that I appreciated about the movie was that it seems. And then I was thinking back at Billy Wilder's early work, particularly Sunset Boulevard, in a time where sort of meta uh, was not just kind of commonplace in movies. Um, it kind of was in his movies. And there's a lot of stuff both when Jack Lemmon's switching around the TV and when he's kind of talking about uh, later on in the film about how he has dinner with, you know, Audrey Hepburn one night and blah, 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 talking about, watch, you know, being lonely and watching TV while he had dinner. Um, and also, you know, the comment about, you know, the, the guy wants to bring over the girl that looks like Marilyn Monroe. And obviously Billy Wilder had directed Marilyn Monroe movies already. So yep. there was a lot of sort of uh, sort of self-referential um, and kind of meta joking in this movie that uh, that was ahead of its time, I thought. Oh, nice. I, I think I missed a lot of that because I don't, you know, I don't know that many of his movies, just a, a handful. So that, that's interesting. Um, well, anyway, so he uh, he winds up kicked out, sits on a bench overnight, winds up getting sick. Terribly so sick. he's he he goes to work sick the next day, and this is where we meet our other lead. Shirley MacLaine, Fran Kubelik, mm-hmm. who's an elevator operator. She's always an... a job. I couldn't understand how it existed. I, I guess in that point in time, you know what I think it was? I think it was like in the very, very early days of elevators. Like you actually had to do it. Like you had to, um, you had to actually do a thing. I don't know if you were like turning a crank or like pulling a pulley or what um yeah yeah, so you needed an actual engineer and then i think it just kind of went into this era of you know the the 40s into the 50s where everything is uh, especially in like manhattan in the upper west side um everything was just very posh and you know there was someone always there shining your shoes or doing whatever um and uh you know it was just expected that you know there was a a person there to uh, to deal with the elevator i wouldn't want to touch any of the buttons myself Right. Okay. Gotcha. It's the white glove treatment. Okay. Well, so she has a surprisingly modern pixie cut, uh, this elevator girl, which looked very fetching on her. Very fetching. But uh, unfortunately, I wasn't the only one who thought so because her cute look earns her an ass grab from one of the executives Uh who uh, liked her hair, thought it made her look cute like a boy. You know what? Yeah. I mean, you mentioned earlier that this is not a Me Too friendly uh, movie, which... uh, I mean, I understand you saying that, but also it is depicting just how horrible things were. And it was doing it at the time. I mean, this wasn't meant to condone this behavior. It was meant to expose it and to satirize it and to shit on it. Um, I guess that's a good point. So, uh, I mean, absolutely. I mean, imagine that poor woman's life, her entire day, nine hours a day, on her feet, in high heels, the only woman with a dozen dudes on the elevator all day, all of whom are making comments and grabbing at her, and that's just her day-to-day. That is an interesting point, and I think it actually is right to a large extent. Um, I'm going to move on to another scene, but we should circle back to this like basically right after that because there's two things that come up. One that I think 
pushes against that and one that I think supports it. Okay. So hang on to that for one sec. So plot-wise in the next scene, Baxter's called up to the big boss's office, Mr. Sheldrake, who's Sheldrake. Fred McMurray. Yeah. Yeah. Now, he knows. He knows all about the deal with the apartment. He's figured it out because Baxter's, uh, his employee reviews are too good. So clearly something's going on and he's put it all together. Mm-hmm. And he wants in on it. He wants the apartment now. But uh, in order to soften the blow, he does give Baxter uh, tickets to see the music man. Uh, so Baxter is kind of sweet on Shirley MacLaine. So uh, he decides to take her out on a date, even though he has a fever of 101. You know, and especially in this, obviously, we're, all, we're you know, watching this and, and with this crazy thing that's going on in the world right now, um, you can't help but, you know, relate everything to it. And the fact that uh, Jack Nicholson, uh, Jack Nicholson, that Jack Lemon is walking around uh, not only you know, sneezing and coughing all over everyone in a crowded elevator, but also just has this, like, like just handfuls of tissues that he's just putting down everywhere. And just, you know, it's just like, yeah. Oh. But you, even apart from that, like, you know, with that, you know, with a fever of 101, you feel like shit, dude. Like, take the day off. Yeah. But anyway, um... She is down to go out with him. All she's got to do is she is arranging to go meet up with an old flame and she's going to cut it off for forever with that dude. She'll meet him up afterwards. But um, before they get there, Jack Lemon charms her a little bit by uh, telling her just how into her he really is. That was a little. He's so. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I know. Where do, you wanna, going. do you want to explain well, what happens here? Because of his job, he has access to the personnel files and he's gone and taken the liberty um, and putting the effort into memorizing her full name, her date of birth, her address um, and every other conceivable bit of information about her uh, that he had access to. Dude, her height, her weight and her social security number. <laughs> And she's charmed by it. She's like, Teehee, you must be so in love with me. And like, you know, modern era, hashtag me too, runs screaming the other way. Yeah, I mean. He, he, he looked at your personnel file to like get your fucking social. It was a little weird and it hit a weird note for me even in the time um i mean it is sort of a trope that a lot of people have made fun of in romantic movies that the person would actually um be a stalker and you know have a restraining order put against them if he pulled any it, of the stunts that they pull um and that it's goes, the onion headline man arrested for behaving like a romantic comedy lead that's exactly right um but you know even all that considered it's like dude played a little cool i mean the modern equivalent <laughs> yeah the modern equivalent would be going up to your coworker um, and making uh, making complimentary comments about Instagram posts she put up in like 2014. I was just gonna say like liking all of her like posts from like going way too far back in the past. Yeah, that's <laughs> just, is, that's the equivalent coming on just way too strong, buddy. Yeah, play it a little cool, please. But yeah, um, definitely that scene was a little cringy. Yeah. And also the the thing about it is, you know, we joke about the romantic comedy stuff, but like to a certain extent, you know, 
if you're a young cishet boy growing up watching these movies, these kind of train you a little bit into what romantic behavior is supposed to look like. So, you know, I've talked about it on other podcasts where, like, when I was growing up, the idea was that with, like, it is the pers- it's uh, the boy's persistence that the girl inev- uh, eventually finds charming and wins her over whereas we've now come to the point where it's more like take no for an answer dude yeah so that's that's the bit that i think pushes against uh your your uh, premise about the values of the film but this next scene i think really supports your position which is that uh Fran, Shirley MacLaine, meets up with Sheldrake, who turns out to be her old flame. He wants to pick things back up with her. And, you know, the thing is, though, he's married, uh, and that's why their fling ended. And she goes into this monologue about what that's like and, you know, sort of like what her life is like is constantly being the other girl or, like, what she can expect and the the plight of women who are just used as playthings by married men who get bored mm-hmm. for a summer. And I was like, damn, because up until this point, the movie had been pretty, you know, light and fun and, you know, snappy. And then all of a sudden it gets really heavy. And the monologue's great. Like, Shirley MacLaine's great in this movie. She you is know? great. She, uh, yeah. she She delivers, like, a really good scene here, I think. She really does. And um, it's interesting. How much do you think this was actually the way it was in those days? How commonplace do you think it was um, that it was just kind of standard that if you were like an executive or if you worked your way up to middle management in an office um, in the city and you had a house out in the suburbs, um, that it was just more or less expected that like a couple times a week you you, you cheated on your wife on before going home? I mean... Is that, do you, th- do you th- I mean, I have no actual knowledge of this. Uh, it's just what I've seen in this movie and Mad Men and, and other things. Um, how much do you think that was actually true? I don't know. If it's, I'm the same as you where like all I have to go on is sort of fictionalized accounts like this and like Mad Men. Um, what I think, though, is that whether or not it was as common as they make it out, what I do think is probably true is that um, it was easy to do. You, you know, it was easy to kind of like abuse your power and your position and the flexibility that your life had mm-hmm. in the in that position to accomplish this. So like if you were the kind of person who wanted to do that, it was pretty easy to. Yeah, and it was a permissive culture in a lot of ways towards bad male behavior um, right. And that includes a lot of things that we see in here uh, as aside from, you know, just being a terrible husband and father, um, but the, you know, the drinking and the smoking and a lot of other things. Um, yeah. So anyway, Sheldrake manages to sleaze his way back into Fran's heart and keep the relationship going with her, unfortunately. So she winds up standing Jack Lemon up. And uh, this was one of the other shots that I liked very much because there's a shot of him waiting outside of the music man for her to show and she never does and i actually thought it was uh, very beautiful in its melancholic way Mm -hmm. just like him standing there alone and like realizing she's not coming 
and just like how lonely he seemed. I, I just it kind of t- it hit me in the heart a little bit. Uh, I think that's I, I agree with you. Um, and part of that also, I think, is just Lemon's physicality. And we'll get into the performances yeah. specifically, but the way that he inhabits certain emotions with his body language um, is is, you know, really great. And particularly in that scene. Yeah. Well, anyway, it, it you know, works out at least okay for him later. Because, hey, he gets a promotion. Second administrative assistant. Sounds pretty cool. Imagine that being something written in paint on your office door. Second administrative assistant. I mean, that seems like what you would call an intern in today's world, basically. Yeah, but look at that view. It's amazing. It's just, I think that there has been sort of an inflation in titles where every company has a lot of vice presidents and a lot of directors uh, and <laughs> sure. so forth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, now we get a cr- that Christmas party. You want to talk about the Christmas party? It looked like a lot of fun. I'm not going to lie. Nothing like that has ever happened in my office. Well, I wanted to ask you, um, so have you ever... Well, I guess, have you ever been to a Christmas party? But what I really wanted to ask is, you ever get too drunk at a company Christmas party? Uh, answer being yes to both. I've n- Same. I've <laughs> never done anything I don't think embarrassing or that I was, like, uh, embarrassed to go back to work. Um, you know, there have been, I think I, I was, did get a little loose-lipped at some times and, and things like that. But nothing that I regretted. I mean, I tend to be at work, you know, somewhat guarded anyway. Um, so, you know, I, 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 to a certain extent, maybe I'm just being like kind of normal. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I have gotten drunk at work parties and, uh, and acted somewhat a fool. Yeah. You know, I tried to learn the lesson from that, but, uh, me too. Hashtag me too. <laughs> um, so what we learned during this rock and Christmas party is one, the original dudes are getting restless. They've been frozen out by Sheldrake using the apartment all the time, and they want back in. Two, Sheldrake is liking the apartment so much, he wants his own fucking key to the place, uh-huh. which is like, damn, dude. Three, um, we've also learned at this point that Jack Lemon's neighbors are getting so pissed about all the comings and goings and noise that they've started throwing shit at him. <laughs> uh, also... We learn Sheldrake is not divorcing his wife, as he told Fran in order to get back on her good side. He's just stringing her along, that dick. Monster. I know. The secretary, Sheldrake's secretary is wise to this whole act because, uh, see, she used to be the side corn, and she actually knows that there's been an awful lot of side corn over the years. And she lets this slip to the current side corn, which is Fran. And Fran gets real upset learning this during the party. Miss Olsen with a ring a ding ding. Um, yeah, that was. I like Miss Olsen. I thought that uh, you know her scene, her close up in the Chinese restaurant scene when she's watching uh, Fran and uh, and Guy leave um, was uh, was was good. And I liked her uh, kind of monologue there. Uh, as well or i guess the scene between the two of them i should say i also did you notice that uh shirley mclean says girl scout weird no i didn't notice that i used to be a girl scout oh she emphasizes scout yeah she said the scout instead of the girl hmm anyway just something i noticed but anyway so at this point poor 
Baxter is trying to flirt with Fran. And at this point, he discovers that Fran is actually Sheldrake's lover because she hands him her broken mirror, which was the thing that he got thrown at him earlier by his neighbors. Mm -hmm. And here we get one of the darkest lines I think I've ever heard in any movie. He gives it to her and he's like, he gives her the mirror back and he's like, it's broken. And she says, I like it that way makes me look the way I feel. Devastating. Devastating and Dark. very good. Um, there, oh. were, there were two lines in the in the Christmas party scene um, that I'm going to take with me. One of them is definitely that one. Um, and the other one is just what I thought was a very good joke. And, and they did a callback to it later on in the movie where uh, Fran asks Baxter how many drinks he has. And Baxter puts up four fingers and says three. Uh, I think yep. I'm going to do that every time I've had too much to drink and someone asks me that for the rest of my life. It's funny. Yeah. He goes and gets drunk at a bar while Sheldrake is uh, spinning a tale for Fran back at the apartment. She, uh, so these two scenes happen side by side. So at the bar, uh, Baxter runs into a classic 60s New York bar floozy. Classic floozy. You mentioned that Billy Wilder had worked with Marilyn Monroe before. Um, I read in the IMDb trivia that apparently uh, this woman is based on Marilyn Monroe explicitly because Wilder did not enjoy working with her and made it basically as an explicit insult towards her in this film. Interesting. Uh, There's also just how many martinis Jack Lemmon drinks. Because he's already wasted. Like, we know he's already had at least five drinks, because he says three, but puts up four fingers, and then he proceeds to have one or, I think, two more with Shirley MacLaine. Yeah, Yeah, so then he goes goes to the bar where he meets Mrs. McDougal, I think, is the the floozy's name. Um, And he's putting down the olive toothpicks every time he drinks a martini. so many. When he leaves, I freeze-framed and counted, I believe, 13. 13 toothpicks. Oh, fuck. Now... A martini, a standard martini pour, is actually, I think, close to three standard drinks because you have uh, more than a drink's worth of gin in there, and then you have the vermouth. So it's like it's like two and a half drinks per martini. So I just got to ask, like, is that is that reasonable that a human being could drink that much and still kind of be able to snap out of it later on, you know, like half an hour later? I mean, they're all drunks back then, right? Yes, yes. And I mean, I've I've had more than 13 drinks in a night before. But, you know, I wasn't... Well done. Yeah, but I wasn't, you know, on top of things at the end of it. No! <laughs> yeah, no, shit. I'd have damn near alcohol poisoning. I mean, yeah. I don't know, man. It... He was he was real drunk and he showed it. And, you know, in point of fact, the only way the bartender is able to get him and the floozy to leave the bar is to turn the jukebox off. Right. Even drunk Santa leaves before then. But I think there he you know, the, this bartender was missing a real opportunity to drive them out of the bar another way, which was to take the jukebox and queue up. What's up, pussycat? <laughs> and then they would just flee the bar, yes. just be like, no! <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Just speaking of callbacks. 
Um, so while this, you know, kind of potential hookup is going down, a much more serious scene is happening back at the apartment. And this is where uh, this this scene is where Sheldrake goes from just a sleazy asshole to an to a psychopath. Later, he becomes a monster. But in this scene, he's just a. I mean, the dickishness is out of control. This is where he's laying down those lines I mentioned earlier, where he's like, I don't know why I'm like this baby. I mean, why does a man run around? Why does he cheat? I don't know. It's because I'm not happy at home. That's it. I'm not happy. Don't you see? And he's saying this. While he is saying this, Shirley MacLaine is in the corner sobbing her eyes out. Yeah. And then, to cap off the wonderful Christmas Eve that she's having, she gives him a thoughtful Christmas gift, and he just hands her a nice, cool hundo. (laughs) He's like, I'm not, it's awkward for me to shop, you know, here you go, $100 bill, I mean... I Here's was... my permission to feel like a whore, baby. Oof. I I mean, like, the gut punch that that must have been, and it's just, like, you are a whore. Here's $100. Uh, this is what you actually mean to me. Um, yeah. I, I, I couldn't believe it. I, I just... Don Draper would never make that mistake. No, I mean, I think the closest he ever did was to ask his uh, former mistress slash secretary to write her own reference letter, uh, which she got really mad at. But in reference is, is you know, light in, in retrospect. God damn. Yeah. And so rather understandably, um, she decides to take some drastic actions here. And I got to tell you, I did not expect a good amount of of this movie to turn on attempted suicide. Nor did I. Did you have, so you didn't, you had no idea this was coming? No, I mean, I think I said early on, uh, or I think I said in in part one that I expected there to be some underlying drama, um, some human dramas and some pathos, um, but I did not expect to actually see a suicide attempt, which again for the time this movie was made had to be pretty provocative yeah yeah um so she um she takes a whole bunch of sleeping pills and uh baxter gets back to the apartment with his bimbo and then discovers oh hey there is a nearly dead girl in my house yes which goddamn this though was the other shot that i was thinking of when i said i thought there were some pretty nice ones which was uh when she's on the bed and he finds her there i thought was actually a pretty lovely uh shot just the mm-hmm. uh, composition the way it looked i thought it was, it was very artful i don't know i i really liked it but um so he throws out he throws out the bimbo who's you know naturally upset she calls him a fink um, and then sets about trying to save uh, Fran from her suicide attempt. And bear in mind, this is uh, this is pre nine one one. Nine one one didn't exist back then, so it's a good thing that his next door neighbor is a doctor. Very lucky. Yeah. So we get some interesting medical treatment during the scene. I actually happened to be watching this uh, in 
relatively close proximity to my dad, who is a doctor, and I was able to get some professional commentary on this scene. Oh, good. So, um, well, number one, uh, he, he mentions as he's trying to give her a shot, he goes, nice veins. <laughs> the, the, the doctor does, yeah. yeah. Nice veins, which was such a weird line, but I liked it. You know, it, it is a funny line, but I've actually gotten something like that myself before, which is that um, whenever I've been, you know, at the hospital and had to get an IV, I guess the vein uh, on the inside of my on my right arm the one in the elbow Mm -hmm. um nurses comment on it they're like oh wow it's so such a nice and big vein i'll have no trouble with that like they they actually like comment on it sometimes honestly i've gotten that too yeah yeah i'm like well good good to know i have a good future as a heroin addict if i ever decide (laughs) to change career paths then yeah um but anyway so the professional commentary was that um doctor did not use a tourniquet when giving the shot. Okay. Um, because you want to go, you want to uh, do the tourniquet, insert the needle, remove the tourniquet, and then inject the meds. Um, and then also, the thing he criticized was do not give her coffee. I questioned because... that for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now I asked him. I was like, so at this point, like, how savable would she really have been in this situation? You know, he. The answer was basically, like, it depends very strongly on, like, what she took mm-hmm. and how much alcohol she'd been drinking beforehand. Mm-hmm. He was like, you know, g- given what we see of the bottle, he's like, if it was that much Ambien, that would have been enough for her to be dead already. Or um, if it was, like, narcotics plus alcohol, that could have done it. So odds are, in the scene, she probably would have needed to, like, be at a hospital getting, like, defibrillated or being put on a ventilator or something. Um but, you know, he was like, basically, you would have to check her pulse and breathing and kind of figure out what she needed. But the big thing would be that she probably would have aspirated the coffee. Like any liquids you give her, she would probably it would probably wind up in her lungs. Mm. So don't give her any coffee. Um, and then the the last thing that I had a few questions about was the sheer amount of slapping. Yes, there was a lot of slapping the shit out of Shirley MacLaine. Which, if it's to Which save someone's life... Which he actually said was 100% medically accurate. Yeah, that's what I... Because I looked that up on the internet, so I didn't have a medical professional next to me while I was watching it, but I kind of had to know. I'm like, was this slapping the shit out of her? Is that for real? Um, and yes, Slaps yes, the shit out of her! Yeah. Like, not... The first time he did it, I was like, oh, damn! Like, and it's such a loud, like, sound effect. Yeah. The slap. And then he keeps going, it's like, the, it's like the end of Chinatown, just like <laughs> front hand, backhand, front hand, backhand, like, so funny, ironically. Ironically funny, yeah, I mean, I was, you know, you, you had the Jack Lemon cutaway where he winces, which was the appropriate reaction to that, um, but yeah, yeah wow. Um, but you yeah. know what, the only time it's okay to do that to a woman, unless she's into that type of thing sexually, is if you're saving her life, so, I mean... Oh yeah, Good no, for you know, of course he, he. It's what he needed to do. My dad yeah. said he actually finished first in his class in uh, patient slapping. <laughs> so, yeah, at med school, so you know, totally legit. Yeah. But so so they managed to save her, and um, you know, on his way out, the doctor encourages Jack Lemon to be more of a mensch. Yeah. Do you know, do you know what that means? A human being. Oh, I loved it. Love the doctor character. Love doctor. Yeah, he was cool. 
then we get a whole lot of scenes of Jack Lemon taking care of Shirley MacLaine mm-hmm. in her recovery as she recovers from the suicide attempt at his apartment. Um, he he has the forethought to hide all of the razor blades in his apartment in his shirt, where you know where she's like, I need to use the bathroom, and he goes, he's like, Oh sure, just one second, and we get some suicide humor where he hides all the razor blades. Mm-hmm. But um, from that point on, I like I could not relax until he he, it was acknowledged that he still had razors in his shirt yeah and he took them back out same um yeah because i'm keep thinking is he gonna slice a nipple off like you shouldn't just just like accidentally reach his hand in it yeah i was like i couldn't couldn't relax um so then there's some calling back and forth to Shell Drake. You know, uh, Jack Lemon is still kind of toadying to him, which is where I'm, this is where I started to like lose my empathy for him because I was like, you know, he, you know he's talking to Shell Drake. He's like, oh, don't worry. You know, I kept your name out of it and stuff and all that. And I'm like, dude, like, is that was the, the thing that was on your mind? Not taking you to the hospital was to keep the dude's name out of it. You know, there was... It was at that point where it sort of stretched for me, like, why is he doing so much work to hold on to this ruse? The same is true when, like, any time he's talking to, um, you know, Dr. Dreyfus or, or his wife, Mildred, it's like, what are, why are you still pretending? Like, why why can't you just be honest with them at this? What are they going to go call your work? Like, just be honest at this point in time. And yeah, the fact that at that point in time, he's still covering for this guy who is is beyond a scumbag at this point. Yeah. And and to be clear what you're referring to is that Jack Lemon continues to maintain that um Shirley MacLaine tried to kill herself because of him. He's her awful boyfriend mm-hmm. and that's why she tried to kill himself. And so at this point on top of everything else now his neighbors including, you know, the doctor's wife like they all kind of fucking hate him or at least think he's a real piece of shit. And I, 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 like you, could not understand the logic of keeping this ruse up. Like, what, like they, everyone fucking hates you, and you really aren't gaining anything by maintaining this farce, you know? Right. It just didn't make any sense to me. Um, but so anyway, so... He's on the phone with Sheldrake, offers to read him the suicide... Would you like to hear the suicide note? No? Oh, okay. Um then he uh he takes uh he takes it back to Miss Kublik. He discovers it's the hundred dollar bill that uh Sheldrake gave her. She says that he should just throw it away. And in my mind I was kind of like Can can I just keep it? Exactly. It's that's I mean at that point in time, that's close to a thousand dollars right there, you know? That's no, no it's probably like a million dollars, yeah. It's <laughs> no chump change. So he tries to distract her by playing gin rummy. Mm-hmm. Then she's all like, you know, I still want to kill myself. And we kind of get the sob story of her background and how unlucky in love that she's been. Right. How many guys were there? <laughs> three. By three, and she holds up four fingers. So uh, good callback. Yeah, yeah. And she mentions um, also that her first kiss was in a cemetery. Um, hey. Which was pretty goth. Cool. Yeah, I thought that was pretty cool. She was out there to smoke. I know. Pretty cool. She's one of the cool girls. Um, but then in the middle of this, motherfucking uh, the other executives come tromping up 
because they're stopping by to have a fling at the dude's place on Christmas Day? On Christmas Day with a bucket of ice with a bottle of booze in it in his fucking trunk. What is wrong with these people? I don't know. So we get um we get Fran laying on Jack Lemon the heartbreaking line too. Why can't I ever fall in love with somebody nice like you? E.g. I don't actually like you, which yeah. is sad for him. Um and then we finally get back to the office because these scenes at, at the apartment actually take quite a while. This is where Sheldrick finally gets around to firing Miss Olsen for outing him uh to his uh current side piece but he did so not really thinking about the fact that miss olsen does in fact have an incredible amount of dirt on him that she could tell to pretty much anybody she wants right so she does specifically his wife yeah yeah so this is around this time in the movie i might have the chronology a little back and forth here but it's when uh sheldrake to me became just the biggest monster imaginable because this is where he actually talks to Fran um, the first time that they've spoken since he compelled her to attempt to commit suicide and he says something like why would you do a thing like that it's so childish I should be really angry with you yeah it is he is beyond (laughs) monstrous at that point I mean it just is an escalation of terrible. I mean, he turned, he starts off being a sleazy asshole. Then there's the hundred dollar bit. And then there's that, you know, not only blaming her for the suicide attempt that he compelled, but then also chastising her for it and trying to make her feel guilty about it and making it all about him. Think about what it put me through. <laughs> Good Lord. Yeah. Well, you know what the problem with Sheldrake is? What's that? He's a taker. He's a taker. And some people take and some people get took. It's a good line. It's in the context of the scene where Fran tells him this, that um, Baxter tells her that he actually once tried to kill himself as well. But because he's like a silly idiot, he did not do a very good job. And instead of shooting himself in the head or in the heart, he shot himself in the knee. (laughs) Which was a kind of weird scene to have, a kind of weird story to put in there as comic relief. I mean, I guess... Yeah, it's more suicide humor. Yeah, it's more suicide humor, which, you know, I mean, that's what it was. And Film's tonally all over the place, I will say that. You know, sensibilities are different in every era, and, you know, the way that you approach things is... The way that you approach things through humor, uh, though at the time might have been, you know, endearing or brave, might come off as crass here, is the is is the um, generous interpretation I'm giving that scene. Sure, fine, whatever. But um, as we start to head into the climax, we discover that Fran's um, aggressive, scary Polish brother-in-law, who's Carl. a cabbie. Carl, Carl, he's looking cabbie. for her because she hasn't been home in two days. Christmas. And uh, it's the 60s, and that means you go prowling for her. 
And he, so first off, the assholes at the company sell Baxter out because he's not letting them use his place anymore. And it's like, one, hey, assholes, your executives at a company use a hotel. And two, there is no two. Just like, don't be dicks. Like, what the fuck? They're all such dicks. Yeah. Although, you know, to be honest, Fran probably should have called her sister over the course of two days. Yeah. She probably I, should I understand, have. you know, there's this whole thing about, like, how's it going to look if you say that, like, you can't come home and you're staying with a friend? I'm like, how times have changed that, like, you can't call your sister and be like, yeah, I'm a little hungover. I'm just going to crash at a friend's today. Right. You can't do that. It's like, all right. Well, anyway, so Carl um gets to Baxter's house and Baxter, for whatever reason keeps up the ruse that he's the boyfriend and earns himself a punch in the face yeah now at this point i think he's just likes the idea that he's playing the boyfriend because he gets to pretend that that's the situation it's the situation that he wishes were true so there may be a little bit of that in there um and also you know glutton for punishment um and also because some kind of martyrdom uh, and also just being a pushover. I mean, it must be one of those because I, t- I got to tell you, I can't understand. I can't understand it. Although then again, maybe the joke's on me because we find out later uh, and the next scenes by on New Year's Eve. So it's a while later. Um, he's through his actions, earned himself a huge promotion. He's yes. he's 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 not the assistant whatever anymore. He's the assistant director. Office right next door. Uh, keys to the executive washroom. Whatever the fuck that is. Really Lots nice of perks, bathroom. Really nice office. Really nice view. Pay raise. Tons of perks. It looks he's he's made it. It's all worked out. And in a weird way, it's worked out for Sheldrake too, because Olson told his wife. He got thrown out of the house, and this means he can just keep stringing Fran along for the rest of her life, or until he gets tired of her. Yeah. I mean, if you didn't, like, you've been talking about how each successive thing has made you hate him more, and now we've reached the point where I've already induced this girl into trying to kill herself because of my actions towards her, and now... Because my plan A of life has fallen apart, I'm going to go back to her as my plan B. But also, not really. I'm just going to kind of string her along a little bit. You know, wow. It, it's just, yeah, absolutely terrible. And this is the point, you know, the, the, um, at this point in the movie where, you know, Fran decides that she's going to go back to him and and believe his line of horses again was the part to me which kind of strained credulity uh, on her end so there's a lot of um well she's in a fragile place she's you know okay probably grasping at straws because he tells her that he's divorcing his wife and that it was up to him you know he's like listen baby i'm divorcing her we can finally be together you know and she's in like you know she's just been through all this she's probably seeing that as a straw to grasp at by mm-hmm. this point so you know whatever but sheldrake asks baxter 
for the key to the apartment. And Baxter fucking quits. Yep. That's where it is. He's finally been pushed too far. And what I do like about it is that it's not just for his own sake, but it's also for hers. Right. The fact that he knows, like, you know, his place is going to be used not just for a, you know, a note, or it's, it's not just going to be used for any old tryst. It's going to be used to the purpose of continuing to ruin Fran's life. And he can't abet that. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even, you know, the, he has the thing that he's taken so much abuse for this whole movie and he has it and he gives it up and he gives it away. And he just quits his fucking job. And it's like, to a certain extent, it's like fucking finally. But to another extent, it's like, it's pretty impressive. Because, I mean, he, he even, he has it in hand now. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And, and he still, he still says no. So, good good for you, Baxter. Way to be, way to be a mensch. Mm-hmm. He's moving out. He he actually gets invited over to a party by Dr. Dreyfus next door, which I could... Th- you talk about straining credulity. This I could not believe. This completely broke all my ability to believe what happened in the movie because after everything that happened, I could not believe that his neighbors would invite him over. They fucking couldn't stand him. <laughs> well, I guess it was like, oh, we're out of ice. Um, we're in a time of history, I guess, where you can't just get ice at a convenience store. So I guess we'll have to get some from our asshole neighbor. And while we're there, it's going to be awkward not to invite him over. Yeah, I guess. But um, Fran finds out from Sheldrake what Baxter did. And of course, she ditches that asshole. And she goes running to her true love in true rom-com fashion. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this was the original. It it. Was close to the original, if not the original version of that scene. Cool, cool. It seemed like it. But of course, right here at the end, we get the payoff for that entire suicide story from earlier, where we hear a bang from his apartment. And for a moment, I was like, I would respect this movie so much if they ended on an incredibly dark, bleak note that Uh he's killed himself right at the end. But no, it was just him... Yeah. Uh, sorry, uh, I had that thought as well. Um, it, but then I thought, well, no, what's happened is he's dropped the gun because he's clumsy and it's just like shot a wall or something. Yeah, I, I, I kind of was thinking that was probably a two, but it's even better than that. He was just opening up some champagne. So. Champagne, cheers. Yes. But you're right, he is clumsy. Clumsy enough that Fran still felt compelled to ask him, how is your knee? Just checking, because, you know, Jack Lemon is the type of guy to bust it up opening a bottle of champagne. Yeah. And they start a relationship, and we end on a line that I had actually heard before, but did not know was from this movie. Same. Where the, they continue to play their original game of Jim Rummy, and she says, shut up and deal. Right. He says, I love you, and she says, just shut up and deal. The end. The end, which, you know... um, not ending on the stereotypical kiss and ending on a line like that was a pretty good move. Yeah, I dug it. I thought it, I thought it was cool, especially because then I got to be like, I know that one. Hey. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that was the apartment. That was the apartment. So 
We've talked about this movie an awful lot, but do you have any kind of like sum up thoughts about what you thought of this and how it kind of matched with your expectations? Oh, well, I'll say a few things about it. Um, The first being that just, you know, from a standpoint of being someone who um, considers himself sort of an aficionado and and sometimes a creator of witty and funny content and film things, um, I'm retroactively embarrassed that I hadn't seen this movie before. It seems like I probably should have. Um, I thought that, I mean, we went through the plot beat by beat and a lot of the machinations were, you know, you know, dated or uh, didn't quite add up. And I think that if you went through a lot of um, the great comedies, even on modern day, uh, you'd probably find that as well. I thought that the writing was incredibly funny. I thought that, um, you know, from one of the very first lines of the movie where one of the executives is leaving the apartment and we first realize what's going on and his mistress says to him, do you bring other girls here? And he says, certainly not. I'm a happily married man. Um, (laughs) You know, that kind of cynical wit was throughout the whole movie. I thought that there was a lot of just hilarious dialogue. Um, The acting was, you know, amazing all the way throughout from all three leads and even from the supporting cast. So all together and, you know, really script wise, acting wise and uh, place in the overall history of film wise. uh, I'm going to say it was a great movie. Cool, cool. Well, you're not the only person who thought so. So it made a pretty good amount of money, a budget of $3 million. It doubled that on its first release in U.S. theaters, and at this point, uh, it's made $24.6 million. Reviews for it were a little bit mixed at the time. Uh, Some people actually did have some moral issues with the film. I can imagine. But um, on Rotten Tomatoes, it does have a 93% from critics and a 94 from the audience. So that's about as close a match as I've seen in a while. But where this film really shined was in the category of Oscar shit. Because this was nominated for 10 Oscars and it won five. I didn't realize how many Oscars it had won. I thought it maybe had won like screenplay and was nominated for some others. Yeah, so check this out. It was nominated for Best Sound, Film Editing, Black and White Cinematography, and Black and White Art Direction, because those used to be separated into Black and White and Color categories. Mm -hmm. Uh, Best Screenplay, Best Supporting Actor for uh, Jack Crucian, who played Dr. Dreyfus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I would have thought it'd be Fred McMurray from this movie, but uh, I'm glad it was Dr. Dreyfus. I'll quickly put in that the studio wanted to cast Groucho Marx for that role. And Billy Wilder thought that that would undercut the, you know, the gravity of some of the later scenes in the movie. But you can imagine what that would have been. I think they made the right choice casting wise, but as a what if, uh, that's fun. Yeah, 100% agree. Like, I'm I'm fascinated by the potential of what, that could have been but ultimately that judgment call was correct that it would have taken me out of the film to see Groucho Marx there yeah interesting um also nominated Shirley MacLaine for best actress Jack Lemmon for best actor though he didn't win and Billy Wilder for best director and best motion picture the movie won for best film editing which is something we talked about as being very good earlier best art direction 
Best Screenplay, Best Director, and Best Picture, which means that Billy Wilder became the first person to ever win Best Screenwriter, Best Director, and Best Producer on the same night. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. I'm thinking back, but Citizen Kane didn't win Best Picture, nor did it even win Best Director. It was, it was only screenplay. Um, so, wow, that's amazing. Yeah. Also, this is a fun trivia bit. Um, it was the last black and white film to win Best Picture until The Artist did it in 2011. Mm. And um, in case you uh, want to think of Schindler's List, which one, uh, Schindler's List is not completely in black and white. Oh, actually, the there's coat. a red coat in it. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, actually, if you think about it, there is a splash of color during the movie of Schindler's List, so it's not actually a completely black and white movie. Okay, why does a man run around? Because he's lonely at home. All right. <laughs> okay, here's $100. Okay, actually. <laughs> Sorry. Um, yeah, and so that's all I had. But, um, you know, in terms of my feelings about the movie... Largely the same as yours. I will say that I think I might have come in with slightly too high expectations, given that uh, despite the fact that an awful lot of this movie revolves around suicide, it is kind of a trifling film in a weird way. Like, it just... I mean, it deals with some dark stuff, And gets kind of like, you know, as we've been talking about, and as you've pointed out pretty cogently, I think, it really, like, serves as an indictment of some of the prevailing uh, male tendencies and moral values of the time. The way it's presented is kind of, like, so light that I'm not sure how much this movie is going to stick with me. So... I'm going to argue against that point because it's something I've thought a lot about um, since watching the movie. And one way that Mm -hmm. this episode is a little different is that I watched the movie like a day and a half ago. So I've ruminated on it some. Um, I think that tonally this movie, because it was kind of such a big deal at the time, it was probably kind of a transition um, from sort of those golden era movies of the 40s and 50s that had a very specific tone, that had things that were very light or, you know, melodrama that was very broad um, into the place that we see the movies head to in the 60s, 70s and beyond, where um, situations like that uh, are treated much more bluntly and much more realistically and without kind of the veneer of having a score and uh, and that type of thing and, and, and having that sort of detachment from it of like, oh, I'm watching a classic era Hollywood movie. So I think you have to place it in that it was not a failure that it, it, it didn't address those um, situations and those themes as well as, you know, movies that have addressed it better that maybe have come later, I think you have to credit it for being um, a movie of its era and the type of movie that it was, and mostly billed as a comedy, for actually dealing with that subject matter um, at all, and dealing with it somewhat seriously. It kind of sounds like what you're saying is maybe it's kind of, it's like a bridge film. It's like bridging two eras a little bit. I think so, yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, for me, I think 
my biggest takeaway of the movie, despite it featuring Jack Lemmon in one of the roles that he's most associated with and made him most famous, my big takeaway of the movie is Shirley MacLaine. And not just because I thought she was incredibly cute, uh, which she definitely was, but because I think she stole the show. She was really fucking good in this, bringing a level of depth to the character, the the what's normally just like the female romantic lead character. Mm-hmm. Like the amount of depth and darkness that she brings to it was something I was not expecting and, sh- you know, shocked me that, you know, during that first monologue, which is so uh, heartfelt and dark and and melancholy and then continued throughout and then just just there's so much more to fran than i would have expected from a romantic comedy film of this era that it was kind of astonishing to me and i thought she was just so good at it like i didn't know shirley mclean for this type of thing before and now i see why she was so famous yeah you know it was kind of incredible yeah. yeah, and I can't imagine um, another actress from the era, and I was thinking about that exact thing while watching the movie, about how, uh, or I wouldn't, won't say another actress from the era, but certainly an actress that we think of being in comedies like this, like a Marilyn Monroe, for instance, and not to say anything negative about Marilyn Monroe, but um, it's kind of odd that I've never saw her in a movie sort of hit the depths acting-wise that Shirley MacLaine did here. Um, even though the character that Shirley MacLaine plays, it, down to the way that she attempted suicide, was pretty similar to Marilyn Monroe's real life, ironically. Um, but I Oof. mean, I agree, it was an amazing performance. Um, yeah. I'll also, you know, just talk a little bit about uh, Jack Lemon, who um, I thought gave uh, an an amazing performance in this as well. And a lot of it I mentioned before was sort of his physicality, his facial gestures, a real comedic um, physical timing and as well as vocal timing. Um, but, you know, the that works dramatically as well. Um, and some of, you know, the double takes that he does uh, or, you know, sort of the facial expression he gives when he first realizes uh, what Fred McMurray is asking when he wants to get in on the key situation or the double take he does when he uh, notices Fran in his bedroom, which is both a comedic beat, but also a very dramatic beat. And he realizes the gravity of the situation um, and the whole mood changes to even something like early in the film when, you know, the other executive wants to come over in the middle of the night and he says, uh, you know, I'm out of liquor. I'm out of clean glasses. I'm out of cheese crackers. And he just like, Every kind of line he gives, um, he just gives a little bit extra to it to make it, you know, funnier and to really sell it. So I thought he did a great job as well. And uh, and McMurray was was excellent, too. So um, acting across this whole movie was great. Yeah. Um, McMurray, we talked about how good he was at sleezing it up. Uh, with Lemon, I think it goes to that thing where, like, comedy doesn't age quite as well um, as genre wise so like uh, you know I know comedy is kind of how Jack Lemon. it's one of the things he's most famous for is his skills in comedy and like he is great in this film in this kind of comedic role but it is kind of so of its time and maybe just because also of what we were talking about that like his my inability to empathize with his motivations became such a problem that uh, I didn't wind up appreciating his performance as much. I have tended to like his dramatic roles that I've seen better 
Um, I'm thinking of obviously Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. I also saw like the China syndrome more recently, uh, you know, Um, so, you know, that that was my feeling on that. But, um, well, uh, I I think you have a good point there just as far as, you know, the comedic aspects to it. I laughed out loud at several of the lines in this movie just because I thought they were very like wittily written. Um, and I thought that the, the delivery was very great. Even like there's that one executive that's like, I already bought a cake. And just the way he just said the word cake made me laugh. Um, but I think there was a lot of the comedic bits in this movie that probably, I mean, when he strains the spaghetti through the tennis racket, I imagine in 1960, people were like rolling in the aisles laughing at that scene. It's just one of those things that was just comedy is very specific to the time and to the moment. And, you know, a lot of that comedic stuff, you can appreciate it. Is You can appreciate a Buster Keaton performance, um, but you're not laughing sure. out loud at it. Yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough. Well, Will, it's time to answer the final question. Do you feel like this movie was better late or never? Was it an essential film that filled a hole in your movie-watching bona fides that needed to be filled? Or was it something that you could go your whole life without seeing? What do you say? I'm going to say for me specifically, and I would say for anyone who is interested in uh, the history of cinema and the history of comedy, and especially anyone who's, you know... um, written comedy or a screenplays or anything like that i i think that this is an essential film for me it was definitely better late um you know overall it's a 60 year old movie and it's a black and white movie and it, all the pacing and all the trappings that come with that so you know it's not going to be everybody's cup of tea obviously um uh but i am very glad that i finally saw this movie that it was um a whole that I didn't even know that I had that I didn't really think about. And, uh, and I'm glad I saw it. I'm going to agree with you. I also feel like this movie was better late. Um, I was kind of feeling more of a never before I thought about it just because, um, you know, like I said earlier, the film itself to me as a whole has a, maybe a light, not too heavy impact feeling for me, but you know, the way you've, discussed it just now has gone a certain way towards adjusting that impression and then two i think that um this film is a better late for me just simply on the strength of shirley mclean alone Mm -hmm. um the performance is i think really something special and you know the role the impression i get just compared to other roles that female actors are often saddled with especially during that time period much meatier darker more interesting and frankly it all comes it comes back to the line of dialogue the exchange i pointed out earlier that i just thought was so it's a small moment and just so incredible and it speaks so many volumes about the character and also kind of about the hidden depths of the movie that's hiding underneath this what even I sort of was taking to be a trifling comedy, which was your mirror's broken. I like it that way. It makes me look like how I feel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so for that, I think I'm on the same page with you. I'm calling this a better late. Good. Well, then I'm glad that I made you watch it. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Well, 
that brings us to the conclusion of our show this week. Uh, if you would like to write in with any listener feedback of your own, please hit us up at betterlatethanneverpod at gmail.com. Or you can tweet at us at betterlate underscore pod on Twitter. Will, this was a great discussion. I enjoyed it. Thank you for this, Dave. Yeah, so, you know, I think we're going to be in the lockdown for a while yet, so we'll have plenty of times to do some more. Let's do it again. Looking forward to it. Pleasure as always. Right on. And for everybody else, I will catch you next time. Bye-bye. <laughs>